Well, um, I'm John, one of the pastors here. For those of y'all that don't know me, it's so great to see uh, you all and to see familiar faces of folks that I haven't seen in a while. So glad to see y'all as I make small talk while I try to get this right. So um, if you would, bow your heads with me and let's pray and let's ask God for help as we get ready to dive into his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we don't use those words lightly, but we're reminded that that your word says that you're a God that sits in the heavens and you do what you please, Father. You have all power, and not just that, Father, you don't have any obligation to anybody, so we're humbled at the fact that you would use all of your great power and might to stoop down and to serve us, Father. I pray that we would be reminded of that truth and we would be grateful that we wouldn't be those that are entitled or feel as if you owe us something, Father, like Mo had shared with us before. You owe us nothing but your wrath, and yet and still you give us so much. Even right now, you're serving each and every one of us by giving us the breath that we need in our lungs. And so, Father, I pray that we would be mindful of that and that our minds would be drawn to hear from you, Father. You're not just a God that gives us things, but uh, you give us the things that we need, and more importantly, you give us your word to tell us what it is that you require of us. I pray that we would hear it, and we would hear it gladly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know about y'all, but I grew up in a home uh, with lots of kids. And so uh, in the absence of a lot of things, we came up with all of these games that we would play. And one of the games that we would play was called Servant for a Day, right? Uh, It wasn't really a game. It was an outcome if you lost the game. And what would take place was that if you lost, you had to be the servant of somebody else for a day, 24 hours, Anything that they asked you to do, you had to go and get. So you had to go and fetch me water when I wanted, or a Coke, or a corn dog, or all of these things. And so what it ingrained in us early on was service is a punishment. It ingrained in my heart as a kid that I want to be the one that's in power, that's calling all the shots. I don't want to be the guy that loses and has to serve. I don't know about y'all, but did any of y'all have parents that would call you in from outside just to get them the remote that was right across the way, right? You just felt like, I can't wait until I have kids so that I can do the same thing to them. We long to be in a place of power. Service is a place that we don't want. And although we've grown up, I don't think that we've outgrown the childish way that we think of service, primarily because the world that we live in, humanity, hasn't outgrown the childish way that it wields authority, right? So we're frustrated, and we don't like to serve because at the end of the day, we feel like that if I'm the low man on the pole, that somebody's going to call me to do something that I don't want to do, and I have to listen. That's what frightens us about the presidential election right now, 
that somebody in a few months may have authority and we just don't trust it at all. So deep down inside, what takes place is that we have an aversion to serving. But one thing that we quickly find out is that regardless of the aversion that you have, it is impossible to avoid it. You have to serve, right? You're going to go to work tomorrow and you're going to find yourself once again in a place where you have to serve. For those of y'all that have kids, enjoy your break right now, but once they come back in, you have to serve them. We all find ourselves in this place where we have to serve, where we constantly ask this question, what does somebody require of me so that I can do it? Though there's lots of ways that we have to serve, there's lots of people that require things of us. There's one person that all of us have to to serve. And the way that you answer this question shapes everything in your life. That person is God. And the question is this, what does God require of me? What does he really want from me? Everybody's like, the shape of your life is based on how you answer this question. There's some of us in the room right now. And we obsess over this. What does God want from me? And we think that he wants all of these things. We think that he wants us to serve him, that we have to read our word and pray and give to the poor and all of these things. And there's all these rules, all these very good things. And the shape that our life takes right now is one where we're exhausted and frustrated and tired because we feel like we're constantly serving God, but we're not doing enough. And service feels like a punishment, like this big weight on our back. Well, we're constantly told about the ways that we fail. And so the shape of our life is one where we do a whole lot of things for God, but it's not really filled with joy. Sometimes we find ourselves frustrated that we made our way into a relationship with God because life was so much easier when I could just do what I wanted. Or there's some of y'all that are in this room that may not be Christians, but you've gotten a whiff of what Christianity kind of feels like from a bad picture. And you felt like if that's what it means to be a Christian, being chained to serve God and to do his will, then I don't want to do that. And the way that I answer the question, what does God require of me, is that I don't care what he requires of me. And I live my life based on what it is that I want to do. Regardless of where you are, all of us find ourselves in this place where ultimately we have to ask that question, what is it that God requires of me? What does he want me to do? How does he want me to serve him? And I want you to know that if we get to the right answer to that question, it's not a burden. It's freeing and liberating, and it fills your life not with more rules and not more weight, but it frees you up to really serve God with joy. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. As y'all turn there, 
want to share with you, the book of Acts is just that. It's a book of the actions of what takes place in the lives of a group of folks in the years immediately after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A doctor by the name of Luke goes through and chronicles how Christianity spreads, right? And this book is kind of split into two halves. It takes Peter, um, the first half, and the back half, it looks at uh, what God does in the world, primarily through this guy named Paul. And so what takes place is Paul is a guy that's kind of grown up, right? Think of the background that he grew up in was uh, Bible Belt Christianity, where he was weighed down with all of these rules and things that he had to do when he spent his life working for God, trying to do all of these things, and it left him tired and burnt out. And what took place was Paul had this dramatic conversion experience where God lifted this weight off of his shoulders. And so what Paul does is he spends his life trying to find folks that are running on this treadmill, right, trying to run and run and run, trying to do the things that God has called them to do, but finds out they're not really making any progress. Paul spends the rest of his life trying to find folks that are where you and I are at and to help them see, listen, serving God, what God wants of us, if we really know it, it's not a burden. It's freeing and it's a joy and it's something that makes us long to serve him. So Acts chapter 17, verse 22, Paul finds himself in this city where there's a bunch of folks busy trying to do all these things for their gods. They hear Paul talk about something that they're unsure of, and they bring him in and they say, hey, tell us more about your God. And so what Paul does is he says this, starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Y'all are busy. Y'all are working hard trying to do all of this stuff for the gods that you serve. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown This I proclaim to you. Here's what Paul does. Paul sees a bunch of people serving really hard, but in the wrong way. And so what Paul does is as he's getting ready to address service in their life, his big point is this. Service is primarily about who you worship, not what you do. Service is not about the actions or the things that you do. It's primarily about who you worship. And so here in this town, uh, scholars think that there was more than 300 idols, right? So what they would say about this town was that it was easier to find a God than it was to find a man. People were so intent of trying to make sure they covered their bases with all of the gods that they made this one statue that says to the unknown God. So just in case they missed one, they're like, hey, we want you to know that we thought about you in here. 
So Paul comes in and says this. In addressing their service, the thing that he starts with is he doesn't immediately come in and give them instructions about what they are to do. What he does do is he gives them an introduction. He gives them a biography, right? Not how to, but the very first thing that Paul says is who is. This is who God is. You have to know him. And so Paul is going to do four things. If you're going to take notes, then there's four things that we're going to see here. The very first thing that we're going to see is who God is. The next thing is what God needs. The third thing, as I look at my notes, is what God does. And the very fourth thing is what God wants. Who God is, what God needs, what God does, and what God wants. Let's start with who God is. Read with me in verse 24 to 25. It says this. The God who made the heavens and the earth, or or the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and all things. Uh, Fifteen years ago, I came across a book by uh, a guy by the name of Arthur Pink, and it's this small book that's called The Attributes of God, and what he does is he just spends this book and just kind of writes about who God is, what we mean when we say God is all powerful, God is God, and uh, there, there's, a ver- there's one small line at the very start of the book that forever changed my life, and this line that he says is this, an unknown God can neither be worshipped nor served. An unknown God can neither be worshipped or served. Service in and of itself is not a valuable thing. Informed service is valuable, right? So if you're going to have somebody to your house, one of the first things that you ask is, do you have any food allergies? Why? Because you don't want to serve peanut butter and jelly to somebody that has a peanut allergy. Because if they do, and you invite them to your house and you serve them and you kill them, you're probably not a very good house host, right? Part of being a good host is to make sure that when people come to your house that they leave breathing. (laughs) But in order to serve somebody right, it's not primarily about first what you do. You have to know who they are. And an unknown God, it's hard, it's impossible to serve an unknown God. Because if you don't know what God wants, then you're going to, you may give him something that offends him. And so for all of your hard work, all that you do is store up wrath for yourself. And that's what the Bible says that all of us do instinctively as we come to God. So here's the very first thing that I want us to grasp and engage. Christianity is very much a religion of the mind. God does engage our hearts and our emotions, but our emotions were never meant to be a substitute for our intellect. 
God wants us to know him. And he's going through great lengths to speak about himself. So that you and I don't have to coast on what we learned when we were six about who God is. God's big, God's grand. And we are to spend our lifetime trying to plumb the depths of who God is and to get to know him. And as we do that, what takes place is we'll find out that he's a lot bigger than we thought that he was. He's a lot more complex than we thought that he was. He's a lot more gracious than we thought that he was. He's a lot more than we thought that he was. Basically, don't settle in your knowledge of who God is. Don't feel like you have to climb the mountain in one day. Start small. But don't coast. So the very first thing that Paul wants us to see about God is the very first thing that the Bible tells us about God. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Paul doesn't even use a complete sentence because it's a foregone conclusion. The thing that he wants us to know is this. Who God is? The Lord of everything. Paul's main point is this. If you create it, then you get to call the shots. So our Bible starts off with the creation of the world, not to give us the scientific way about how the world was made. Science answers completely different questions. Science is meant to tell us how and when. Right, So guys spend their time trying to find out how the world was made and when it was made. And so they work and they date and do all of this. The Bible is meant to tell us who and why. Who made the world? Why did he make it? So as we're drawn to the fact that God made things, it's so that you and I sit back and none of us feel like we're the high man on the totem pole because we're not. God created, therefore God gets to call the the shots. And so it's, it's one of the most basic rules of life. Kids know this rule, right? So after they learn mom or dad, one of the words that they learn quickly is mine. Because they want you to know if they own it regardless of how they came into possession of it, you don't have control, it's mine. The Bible starts off this way so that as we read through all the instructions that God has, you and I know very, very clearly the most important question that we have to answer is what does God require of us? Because he requires something and he has the right to because he made it all. You and I have a responsibility to God. The very next thing that we see here is this. What does God need, right? Authority, at the end of the day, it doesn't eliminate problems or needs. What it does do is it gives you the power to direct somebody else to meet your needs, right? Uh, We were at Pastor Richard's house uh, yesterday and it was his son's birthday party Richard's sitting at the table and he needs a fork but instead of standing up and getting his own fork he tells his son who it's his birthday party go and get a fork for me Richard had a need 
the authority didn't mean that he didn't have needs. It just meant, oh, I can direct somebody else to take care of my needs. Here's the thing about God. God has all authority. But do you know what God needs? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Look here at Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of it all, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to man life, breath, and all things. This is one of the things that makes serving God confusing, is that as you and I think of the concept of service, we think of me meeting a need that somebody has. The problem is God has no needs. If God made an album about all the needs that he had, it would be a blank disc. If God wrote a book about all the needs that he had, it would be blank pages. God unlike my wife, would be the easiest person to grocery shop for because his list wouldn't require you to find anything special on an aisle because he doesn't need anything. So we sit back and we ask ourselves, this God that has no needs requires something of us. It's confusing, right? What would we do if he really doesn't have any needs? The reason why Paul draws us to think about this God who's Lord of all but has no needs is this first thing right here. Because God has no needs, one thing that we learn about God, it's impossible to manipulate God. God's never in a rush. God never does anything by accident. He's never backed up against the wall. He's never led to act in desperation. Everything that he does is calculated, is perfect. Every relationship that we have in the world that we live in falls on this spectrum of neediness and autonomy of folks that don't have any need. Many of us have probably found ourselves in a place or in a relationship with somebody where it seems as if the only reason they stay close to me is because they need something from me, right? It's frustrating to be in a relationship with somebody where you constantly feel used or you feel like every phone call or compliment or thing that they do has this ulterior motive. Do you know what's harder than that, though? To be in a relationship with somebody that doesn't need you at all. Because when you're used, at least you still get a phone call. When you're used, at least you still feel this sense of value. I'm frustrated with what they do, but they still need me, so I'm going to stick around. Have you ever seen somebody transition into a relationship where people were needy and then they don't need them anymore? 
and they try to derive all their value from being needed. This is every mom when their kids go off to college, right? I remember um, when I went off to school um, and I would go home and, you know, I'd sit and I'd talk to my mom and we'd have this, this great time. And then I'm getting ready to go home and I go somewhere else and get on a plane. And so she, 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 she'd cook all of this food and she'd try to send me on a plane with this big like pot of rice and chicken. And I had to tell my mom, mom, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for all of the years that you fed me, but I'm a grown up and I know where to get food. I have food at home. But it's this sense of you and I, what we tend to do is we gain our value from being needed. What happens when a God who is Lord of all looks at us and says, I don't need anything. If you gain your value by being needed, then what your relationship with God is going to look like is you're going to make up these needs and you're going to constantly try to do all of these things to impress God with how well that you share or how well that you give. And you're going to give him things that he doesn't want or need. Listen, because God doesn't need anything, do you know what it's impossible to do? To bargain with God. To trade with God. Because anything that you try to give him, he already has it. It's like trying to incentivize Bill Gates to do something that you want by saying that you're going to to pay him money. This is a guy that says, I don't think that you get how this whole trading thing works. You need to give me something that I don't have and that I want. What do you give to the person that has it all to get them to do what you want them to do? Nothing. So all of the prayers that we've prayed, God, if you'll just do X, Y, and Z, then I'll give you X, Y, and Z. Those are wasted prayers. You do know that. God doesn't trade. We don't have leverage. You only have leverage with people that have needs. God has no needs. You can't bargain with him. So what does God require of us? A God that's Lord of all. That's who he is. What God needs? Absolutely nothing. So does that mean that what does God do? Hear what Paul says that God does. This completely self-sufficient God that has no needs. What does he do with all that power, with all that time, with all that joy, with all that freedom? Here's what God does. He serves everyone. Verse 26 says this. Or starting in verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Listen, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man 
every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. The other reason that the Bible starts off with creation and it gives us the sequence of events of what God does is so that it's clear to you and to I that when God made the world and God made man, God didn't create servants. God created sons. Our value to God is not expressed in how much he needs our service Our value is expressed in the great lengths that God goes to to serve us. That shows us how much that he cares. This is what we do with our kids. We stay up late nights. We work hard to provide for them. We care for them. We give them all of what they need. We attend to them. We put up with all of the things that if they were grown-ups would get them fired from their jobs and put out of the house. Parents put up with all of those things. Why? What did their kids give them? What do kids bring to the table in terms of being able to pay the bills or put food on it? Nothing. So why do parents serve them in the way that they do? Not because of the child's contribution, but because of the parent's great love for them. And this is what God does. And there's a word that the Bible has, or there's a word that we have for this. It's this term, common grace. That when when we say God serves all, it's a beautiful day outside. But it's a beautiful day outside for good guys and bad guys. Bad guys don't have a rain cloud over their head. Or we all would have a rain cloud over our head. God gives these gifts, right? Life and breath and all things. He's generous in the way that he gives it. Not only is God generous, but it goes right here and it says, God's very strategic in what he gives. Look with me at verse 26, it says this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods or the boundaries of their dwelling place. God has determined when all of us here in this room would live and where we live. He's determined the relationships, the friendships that we would have, the jobs that we would have. He's determined the frustrations and the hard times that all of us would have. Why? Verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Here's what God has done with each and every one of us. The way that he served us. 
is he's strategically rigged our lives in such a way where everything that comes or takes place in our life is designed for you and I to find our way back to God. Those of us that are looking in this life and searching for value or for fulfillment or satisfaction, every highlight and every hard time that God has put in our lives, he's done so, so that you and I would find our way back to him. Here's what that means. Nobody, nobody that's in here is in a bad situation that God is panicking over, saying, I don't know how they're going to find me out of this. Everybody in here, regardless of where you are, even if you've presently found yourself in a place where you're indulging in sin, things that God has clearly told you not to do, and you find yourself turning your back on all your morals, principles, all the things that that God has called you to do, God is allowing that to happen as he does so often so that we all would see the futility of it all. Not that we would take his grace for granted and think that we would stay there, but God has allowed that to take place so that as we sit back and reflect, we could sit here at a time like this and say, I've spent all my time chasing that, and it's not what I hoped it would be. I'm missing something. I don't have the joy that I hoped this relationship would bring me. I don't have the value that I thought that this job would bring me. I'm missing something, and God has strategically allowed us to be there in order that we would turn and find our way back to him. Here's the beauty about that and why I say that it's God serving us and not him being selfish and that he just wants folks to to flock back to him. Remember, God has no needs. And what takes place is this. If you're in a relationship with somebody that has no needs, you never have to question their motives because they don't need anything from you. This is why politics are so rough, right? Because you have people that tend to say things, but at the end of the day, they need something from you. They need your uh, approval. This is why it's so hard for me at times, right, to, to serve folks in the best way that God is... Has, has called me to serve because in my heart I feel like I constantly need to work for the approval of people. And so what that means is that there are times where there are very hard truths and hard things that have to be said. And I'll shy away from saying it because I feel like if I say it, my approval ratings are going to go down and I feel like that I need that. The beautiful thing about God is that he doesn't need anything. So he's not bound by all of that. 
So he's not going to shy away from saying the hard things to you or putting you in hard places because whether he has your uh, approval or not, he's still God. He can't be impeached. He can't be brought off the throne because he made it all. This is why even the most hard and uncomfortable things from God are a sign of his grace towards us. And we shouldn't be so quick to turn our back on those things. It's God serving us in a way that people that are needy can't. And the beauty about somebody that has no needs but calls us to serve is this. It's not that God wants something from us. It's that God wants something for us. God has everything that he needs. He's not dependent on you to give him something. Your faithfulness doesn't add an ounce to his godness. Your unfaithfulness doesn't take away an ounce of his godness. He is who he is. And God commands us, God requires something of us, not because he needs stuff from us, but that he wants something for us. This is why jealousy and envy as we look at other people's lives is so foolish. Because God has in his grace given you everything that you need and placed you at the most advantageous place for you to seek him and to find him. And jealousy says, I want something that God didn't give me. But God didn't give it to you because it's not advantageous for you to find your way back to him. So jealousy is suicide because it longs for the very thing that's going to rob us and keep us from finding God, which is our true joy. So instead of being jealous and envious of what somebody has, we need to look at what God has done in our lives and trace his hand and find a place to thank him and to be gracious. I'm grateful for 15 years ago getting held up at gunpoint in Nigeria. Because God used that to shock me and for me to find my way back to him. I'm grateful for the stories that I hear of folks. There's this one uh, girl that goes to church here, and she found herself in a place in life, although she knew better, God allowed her to indulge in all types of things. She saw the emptiness of all of the stuff that she thought would bring her joy. And so she had a friend that told her to come to church with her. So she goes to church with this friend that God had designed to place in her life. And what takes place is her friend takes her to a big church that's here in town. And as the guy preaches, he often preaches stuff about God that is untrue. And he says one day from the stage, don't take my word for it. Go home and read your Bible. And God made sure that she was there that day. So she goes home and reads her Bible. She comes back to church the next week and she says, I took your advice, but what you're saying is not in here. And she met the God of the Bible. 
And God strategically designed all of that in order that she would find her way back to him. Who God is, God's Lord of all. What God needs, absolutely nothing. So we can be sure that his motives are pure. What God does is he serves us all in placing us in a place where we find our way back to him. And lastly, what does God really want? If he doesn't need anything from us, then what does God want? relationship. God has done all of what he's done. Not to just get people to serve him. He doesn't need anything. If you think your value is in the sight of God or in in the sight of God is based on what you do, that's false. Your value in this world isn't even based on what you do. Because what you find out is that long after you do what you do and you're gone, the world is going to keep spinning. Your job is going to keep going. People that you thought were dependent on you, they're going to find a way to make it. So here's what God wants. Relationship. Starting at verse 27, it says this. God's done all of this that they should seek God or perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And then Paul's going to get into this. Here's the thing about relationship with God. Is that all of our relationships with God start off broken. You have this God who is in need of nothing, has chosen to use all his energy to provide for the needs of people that can give nothing. And instead of thanking God and praising God like we should, do you know what we do? Run after idols and things that can offer nothing but eventual disappointment. This is what the Bible calls sin. It's not primarily the acts that we do, but it's who we worship. We think that there's some good or some joy to be found in things that God explicitly tells us to stay away from. And we give our lives and our thoughts to it. And as a result, we reject this great God that has given all of this stuff to us. So although it says that Right, Paul says God is not far from each one of us. He may not be far, but he is distant. And it's our sin that's created that distance. So here's how relationship with God is restored. Read with me verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, and uh, image um, formed by the art and uh, imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked or God winked at, right? So, So what Paul says is there was a time where God hadn't revealed himself as fully as he had in the person of Jesus. But Paul's saying since God's done that, 
and it's become abundantly clear what God wants from us. Paul says this, but now God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You and I have broken God's standard. You and I have broken the standards that we set for ourselves. Everyone here in this room has something in the past that they wish they hadn't done. Something right now that they wish that they would stop doing. Some line that they've drawn that they said they're never going to cross, but will find themselves one day likely crossing that line. We aren't standard keepers. And so here's what Paul says. That what God wants from us is relationship. And the prerequisite to relationship with God is repentance. When I said that um, trading with God is something that God doesn't do because he has it all, I may have overstated my point. God does trade with us. But one thing only. It's something that he doesn't have. And do you know what that is? Sin. Imperfection. Failures. If you try to trade God your righteousness for his favor, he's going to reject it because he has that. And more than that, it's just an additional weight that you put on your shoulders. How many times have we prayed, God, if you'll just get me out of this, then I'll do this and this and this and this and this. God gets you out and it's time for you to fulfill your end of the bargain. And what you found out is that this promise that you made is this weight that just rests on your shoulders. And serving God now feels like a burden. God says, I don't want that. Do you know what Jesus willingly took when he was on the cross? Not our righteousness, but our sin. He said, I'll give you my favor, not if you'll add a weight on your back, but if you'll take the weight off of your back. God exchanges his favor and his kindness towards those of us that willingly submit and yield to him and say, Father, I've done wrong. It's impossible for me to do right. I struggle. I need your grace and your help. For those of us that spend our lives willingly yielding to Jesus, God exchanges our guilt and our shame for righteousness. And that's not a weight that's put on our back. It's a weight and a load that's lifted. Here's two pieces of good news. The very first one is this. You don't have to wait for Jesus to fulfill his end of the bargain. He already did it. It's happened in the past. 
So you don't have to wonder, if I give this up, what's going to take place? He's already died and rose. Here's the next piece of good news, the promise that we get here in God's word. It says this, God's aim is that we would seek him. And if we do, that we would find out that he's not far from each one of us. Repentance is not making up for lost time. Repentance is not paying God back as if you ran from God. And now repentance means I've got to run and make up for all the things that I did wrong. No, no, no. This is what God does. And this is why it's such good news that as we run from God, God is pursuing us. So repentance means I turn around. I don't have to turn around and make up for lost time. I turn around and I find out that God is close. God's there. The beauty about God being omnipresent or being in all places at all times is that he's equally close to any distance. So I want you to hear this. You may be here and think, I've run so hard. I've done so much wrong. It's going to take so much for God to accept me. No takes you turning around and saying, I'm turning my back on this sin. and I'm turning to embrace God. I don't know what the future holds. I know right now that I desperately need God to exchange my sin for his joy. Jesus has already done it and God's not far. Repent. Enjoy the blessing that comes from it. It's good news. Who is God? He's Lord of all. He's in control. We are responsible to him. What does God need? Absolutely nothing. So we never have to question his motives. What does God do? He serves us. It's not about what God wants from us primarily, but what God wants for us. And what God wants is a relationship with him where we find that we are people that have nothing to give, but because of the way that he served, we get everything. That's the good news of the gospel. That's a weight that comes off of our back. This is how our God serves. And a true knowledge of God yields a right relationship to him, which is one of service. Three quick things before we go. We get to know God better by the way that we serve him. What God has done with all of his power and with all of his freedom is he uses all of that, not to sit back and to be served, but to serve. And so as Christians, what take place is that as as God has freed us, He's given us the privilege of joining with him in the family business and serving. And what we find is the paradox of the Christian faith. Joy never comes primarily in what we receive, but what we give. Christ's great joy was in giving his life to save so many of us. And he gives us that pathway. We get joy in what we give. So we serve God and we give our lives to service is a sign that we really know him. 
those that really know God and are grateful for what he's done, those that have been brought into the family, take on the family business and they make their life about serving God. And as we serve God and busy ourselves with his agenda, we find that it's the greatest deterrent for unfaithfulness and sin. And the very last one is this. We don't have to obsess over what God requires of us. We don't have to constantly try to fill our calendar with strategic ways of how we can serve or what it is that we should do. Do you know all that we have to do? Is to be observant. If God has really strategically placed us in the best place for us to know him, that we can trust that he's placed us in the best place for us to serve him. The relationships that we already have, family, friends, co-workers, jobs, God has placed you there so that you would make them known there. Take advantage of the things that are right in front of you and on your doorstep. And this is the beauty of being a a part of a, a church. Mo shared about here in a few weeks, we're going to share with you all about um, what goes on in the life of the church and how you can be a part. That a church is a community of needy people that know their deep need for God, but they've experienced the gracious way that God has served them. And so what they do is they commit to serve one another. And so a healthy Local church is a place where needs should never go unmet for a prolonged period of time if it's in the power of the people that are here to do so. Because at the heart of Christianity is saying there is a God that had no obligation to us, but he chose to serve us. Therefore, we're going to do the same thing. And that's why at times it's absurd to have a, a church full of folks and to feel as if We don't have enough folks to serve with our kids. That's a poor reflection of our God. It's an indicator of what we truly worship. But the beauty of what God has done is that he knows that throughout our lives, we're going to obey him imperfectly. And there's going to be things that we fail to do But if we're confident that he's really spoke to us in this, that when we do hear about the great way that God has served us, it doesn't just go in one ear and out the other, but it inspires us to find needs that are right around us, to put our head down and to serve. And my prayer is that this church would be just that, not just in these four walls, but here on the southwest side of town that we would be reminded that God is going to great lengths to serve us and our lives would be spent in service, not because we have to, but because it's a great joy and a privilege to emulate our Father. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the way that you served us and the model that you've left for us. Ah, Lord, I pray that you would help us to serve with joy. Remind us, Father, God, that 
even though our first impressions of service were wrong ones, I pray that you would reboot that in our minds and give us the grace, Father, to uh, create a new model and a new normal for those that come up after us. Give us the grace to serve well. Remind us that what you want from us is us, our hearts, and where we're powerless to do so. We ask that you would serve us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.